So this is the first uh, adaption where uh, there's no death bonnet. She just nope. has her hair out. She's dying without a death bonnet. Yeah. And I don't know how you do that. Um, <laughs> if you're going to die of essentially like sadness because your son ran the family Killed into the ground. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a death bonnet. You should be sweaty in a death bonnet. I don't know how else you die. See, um, this uh, Mrs. Reed was pretty like spazzy and agitated. So they probably tried to put a death bonnet on her, but like a fussy baby, she kept ripping it off. So <laughs> that's my theory. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. That's, you know what? That fills in a gap for me. And this is why this podcast is so important is it lends me context for moments like this. Like, why doesn't Mrs. Reed have a death bonnet? Yeah. Fuzzy baby. Fuzzy obviously. baby syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> good morning, Lillian. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I, it's good to see you again after seeing you yesterday. I, uh, me and my fiance drove out to visit Lillian in this lovely little town where she lives. And uh, do you want to tell us about that awesome thing that you bought when we went to that bookstore, Lillian? Oh my gosh. So we went to my little local bookstore that I love very, very much, um, whose name is escaping me, but it's the local bookstore in Red Wing, Minnesota. So if you ever come <laughs> here, you can go see that. It's my favorite place. I love it so much. But I asked if they happened to have a copy of a little book called Jane Eyre, and they did. And it was $5, which is the exact price I'm looking for, for a book that I'm planning on annotating. So I want to get a beautiful copy of it, but I also wanted a copy that I wouldn't feel bad about like going, Hey, look, this wasn't every adaption of the movie. Oh my God. I, I have to say, I love that. Um, three episodes ago, maybe you were saying you're like, people will have to pay me a lot of money to read this book. <laughs> and now here we are, you bought it yourself. We're going to do something with that later on. But I think if anybody looks at my TBR, they know that just because I physically own a book does not mean I'm going to read it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yes, Lillian is now the proud owner of a copy of Jane Eyre, which means that she is one step ahead of me. I will yeah. buy one myself. And then later on, uh, we'll figure out a cool way to incorporate reading the book along with some of our uh, adaptation reviews. Well, and I think that that does a great job of uh, talking about one other thing before we get into talking about this um, adaption that I mm -hmm. wanted to talk about. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's because it, it shows my competitive nature um, as I already am like trying to beat you in Jane Eyre knowledge by buying the book before you. But I think it's important that we talk about something that I'm sure you're sick of talking about because Sam, your fiance, and I talked about it a lot yesterday when you visited, but I think oh it's God. important that our listeners know. <laughs> oh my God. Um, I got a little vocab lesson this week. Some of you may have noticed, or specifically Sam noticed, <laughs> that I say adaption and Piper says adaptation. And Sam said that adaption is not a word. And <laughs> I had... I had no reason to not believe him. So in mm -hmm. the moment I sort of let that go. And then I thought about it and I was like, that's weird. Where would I have gotten that if it's not a word? So I did Google it. And for those of you who are also like me, someone who likes to live and learn, it is a word. It is a word. <laughs> Adaption and adaptation are actually interchangeable words. You can use mm -hmm. either one. Adaptation is, however, more commonly used because they're interchangeable. If you're editing something, um, adaptation is the more proper one to use. However, uh -huh. both are real. Um, and I think that the lesson that Sam learned in this is before <laughs> you correct your friend, who's incredibly petty and competitive and has a podcast <laughs> and will tell uh, the universe about it on air, yeah. do, do a quick Goog, just like Google it a little bit. If you think that something's not a word before you correct someone when out to dinner with your friends for someone else's birthday, um, <laughs> Just like Google it. I say adaptation because I usually think of the movie uh, titled Adaptation, which is actually an adaptation of one of my favorite nonfiction stories mm. ever, which is The Orchid Thief. So I think that's where I get the pronunciation of it. But also as someone who is engaged to this man who likes to correct people on mm -hmm. verbiage, I am someone who famously makes up a lot of words that I just, <laughs> they just sound like words that exist. And I think I hear them a certain way and then they get ingrained in my head as something that's a thing. And my, the way I live my life is I just like go forward full force confidence. And I'm like, if I'm confident enough, 
then people will believe the word I'm using is real. And Sam usually likes to be like, actually, it's this. And I'm like, well, thanks for telling me, but I'll probably keep saying it the other way. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that we both know because Sam is one of our, our loyal, loyal listeners. Yes. Um, I Super just want to say to Sam right now, I know it's driving you crazy that you can't participate in this conversation. <laughs> That's why I'm doing it. Oh my God. You're so petty. <laughs> and on that uh, note... <laughs> Give us a summary of uh, the first three episodes of the 1973 BBC miniseries, a favorite of some of our listeners, uh, generously shared with us uh, by two of them. And uh, we are now going to give you a very fast recap of what happens in the first three episodes, and then we will talk about our reactions. Yes. So our goal is always to get as short as possible. Um, And so I'm going to try that now. Piper, are you prepared to time me? I am pulling up my timer right, right now. You tell me when you're ready, because I oh. got the notes and I'm ready to go. Alrighty. My competitive ready. streak is out here. <laughs> ready, set, go. So we start with Jane Eyre. She is a child. Ghosts are real. Um, she's bullied for being a child by all of the adults in her life. Um, then she becomes an adult, goes and gets a job, and moves away to live in this fancy house where there's some weird laughter. Her boss shows up after not being there. He is hot and he is into her. Um, <laughs> then there's a bunch of people that come to visit and her boss says he's definitely going to marry one of them. Um, and then a random man shows up. Everybody gets pretty weirded out about it. Um, and then the man gets attacked in the middle of the night. Uh, then Mr. Rochester, who's her hot boss, um, ends up sort of sending him away as quickly as possible. And then her aunt is we find out her aunt who was bullying her at the beginning dying jane goes to see her aunt dies that's all that we know and then the, the story is we'd have no idea what happens after that it's a, it's a big mystery there's isn't no it? way to know without watching the next few episodes so lillian you did that in 52 seconds although Dang. i i feel that um you had an unfair advantage because i could tell by looking at your eyeballs that you were reading off of notes which yeah. in the past i have not been reading notes i didn't prepare anything before so that's why you did yours faster was that you said 53 seconds 52 seconds that's way slower than we've done it in the past but i only did three episodes so i think the notes made it worse <laughs> oh no <laughs> my record was the 43 seconds and i did so I think I got too into the child bullying, which I always do. Yeah. I'm always distracted by them bullying children. I don't know why I can't just let that go. Lillian's out here, champion for children, trying to protect everybody, which by the way, um, let's ju- jump right in with my very first note, which is the fact that this bullying is like extremely physical because freaking John Reed gut punches his cousin twice, two times. He punches her in the stomach. That's a lot. Well, and what a coordinated efforts from her cousins too. Like oh my God. the girls are like backing him up always um, being like, mom, she, she attacked him out of nowhere. We just bullied her into a corner. He started hitting her and then she had the gall to hit him back. Oof, she's yeah. crazy, mom. I actually kind of, how that was interesting having the sisters kind of have a more active role in this though, because before it definitely felt a little weird to me. I, I don't know, it's maybe a bit more creepy or sad if like one person is abusing someone in a family and the other people know about it they're just not saying anything and so but it's also not good that they're like in on it but I don't know like the fact that they were all like haha this is all a big game for us and blah 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 I don't know that was interesting where before it's usually just John and the other ones all seem just kind of afraid of him so they don't say anything but here it seemed like the girls were like yeah do it so yeah, that was an interesting it was- choice It was just a huge bummer overall. I think the most heartbreaking line, which may have been in some of the other adoptions we've watched with the, um, with the more of the childhood, but really stood out for me in this was she says out loud, please love me. Or when does she, who does she say that to? I can't, I think she says it just in the room, like when she's begging for someone to come get her, but I can't remember Interesting. for sure. But she, hmm. I wrote down that she says, please love me. I said, go surreal. Please love me. Such <laughs> a tight jacket. Oh my gosh. This episode really stood out to me where I feel like we haven't seen this level of everyone like covering up the abuse of since the first eighties one that we watched. Cause mm-hmm. there was some of that too, but this one really stood out to me where like the doctor is summoned and 
Besser is like totally covering for her little master being like, oh no, Jane just fell. And it's like, don't do that. Don't lie. Don't, yeah. don't make it seem as if nothing's happening. And the doctor, thank God, is good enough to be like, hey lady, why don't you leave the room and yeah. create a safe space for this child and be like, if they're hurting you, blink twice. <laughs> yeah. And, and his whole thing about like, would you want to go to school? Like that's the first time that they gave child Jane any sort of agency, which is really interesting. And I am curious if that's in the book. I don't think that it is, but who's to say, but <laughs> guessing on something we haven't read yet. <laughs> we'll never know. Um, there's no way to know, but I think that that's, that's definitely an interesting kind of new way to look at the childhood. And then the guy who comes, um, what's his name? Yes. Brocklehurst. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a whole new level of awful in oh this. My they really God. make him a villain. But there's a scene when he comes to like inspect everybody and he has them all lined up and he asks that one group of girls to turn and face the wall. And he's like, we have to cut off their top knots because if they have long hair, they will seduce men. And I'm just like, God, you are so disgusting and gross. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he was bad enough. I think the way they did Brocklehurst in this was so different than the other versions that we've watched um, because he was so awful um, and I'm, I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the childhood because it just bombs everybody out. It's just but, sad. <laughs> um, he was so awful that a committee came in and went, you aren't feeding them and you aren't giving them blankets. So all these girls got typhoid and died. Yeah. Isn't it typhus or is it typhoid? It is typhoid. typhoid fever. Typhus. We'll One of the two. It, we, you know what? Maybe they're interchangeable. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> we will never know. We don't have access to the internet. You guys soon we'll have a, uh, a GoFund us. We can hire a fact checker and it'll be Sam. <laughs> oh my God. Just pay Sam like five bucks to be an annoying know-it-all to no, tell no, us. No, no. Like, the money is for us to tolerate <laughs> Sam being annoying. No, all. there we go. That works. <laughs> oh my God. So I made a note. I loved that when uh, Jane was like talking with Helen and cause like Jane is such a person of like imagination and she's like, obviously has this artistic inclination, which I'm really going to talk about later on. But when she asks Helen about the book that she's reading and she looks at it and she's like, well, that looks really boring. And I just wrote down, like, she's kind of guessed on here and just being like, how can you read this? There are no pictures. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to find a way to bring Beauty and the Beast into this story. As we should. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Helen because this Helen is so deathly ill the whole time she constantly the little <laughs> the little cops <laughs> I have a little note here that's like why is Helen so creepy coming up with the candle <laughs> Helen must be full crazy like I just have a bunch of notes about Helen I think Helen was a ghost the whole time whoa wouldn't that that's be an interesting theory. interpretation that's my new theory is that specifically in this adaptation she's mm -hmm. supposed to be a ghost the whole time and if you watch it with that lens on She's mm -hmm. definitely a ghost. Well, and I think we should consider uh, when the time comes that we make our own adaptation of Jane Eyre, mm -hmm. we should really play with this idea of ghosts and maybe make twist. We'll have our own M. Night Shyamalan moment where it's like, actually, she was seeing dead people the entire time. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. yep. <laughs> We're going to do it's that, which like spoiler alert for the fans of the podcast. But I guess that's that's the advantage you get for this blockbuster hit of this mm -hmm. new perspective on Jane Eyre. So you guys have this like inside line of having listened to us. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be so great. It's going to be so great. <laughs> uh, oh, I wanted to say that, um, yeah, the scene. So, cause we've had the scene in uh, versions before where Brocklehurst comes with his family to like mm -hmm. kind of review to see how everything's going. But the way this one was played out, it felt way more like, did you ever see uh, Shirley Temple movies growing up like Curly Top or any of those? Yeah, but it's been a really long time. So um, because those were kind of like uh, depression era movies, um, they often had this kind of like poor orphan girl rise, like rags to riches story for her because it was about like uplifting the sad public. But it was very common that she would start off as an orphan or in an orphanage. And there was always scenes like this where the benefactors would come to see how the school is run. And they were always really harsh and they had their own agendas. 
just like Brocklehurst here. And so, and then there's little Shirley Temple, like a little ray of sunshine being like, I'm trying to bring everybody out of their sadness. And they're like, stop it right now. Oh, there was another thing, an exact like uh, parallel between these two. When Brocklehurst sees the girl with the naturally curly hair and he's like, you have to cut off her hair or straighten it because you can't have curls. That's too much fun. There's, I think one of my favorite Shirley Temple movies is The Little Princess where um, when at first, when she's living at the school for girls, her father is alive and he's very wealthy and therefore she gets anything she wants. But when it's presumed that he's died in the war and he's also penniless, now Shirley Temple's character has become a burden on the lady running the school. And she finds out that her dad has died like on her birthday, like during her party. And the lady comes in and she's like, throw away that cake, get rid of those presents. And you, Shirley Temple, take those curls out of your hair. Your dad is dead. You're not allowed to have curls anymore. It's just like, Jesus, why? Oh, no. So I saw that and I was like, wow, here's some similarities. Yeah, that's so intense. Oh like, gosh. Yeah. And I think that that's the, the, there was also another interesting line that I think is, uh, goes into another big difference between this and some of the past ones that we've watched that I really want to talk about, which is, um, the way that we have the narration in this. Yes. Um, I think this feels like we get the most context inside her head because of that. Like even we've had other ones with some level of narration, Mm -hmm. but never this level of narration. Right. And the actors play the scenes really differently, knowing that we get the context of what's Mm -hmm. happening in her head. And, um, I think the first example of that plays into the, the poverty and wealth and what does that mean for children and stuff? Mm -hmm. Because that moment going back to when the doctor is there with her in the room, when she's, he's asking her about like, if you had other family, would you want to go live with other family? And she talks about how in her head, in her head, we're hearing her go, I didn't have any idea what poverty was. I just was told it was like morally bad and really upsetting and like, that's got to be worse than living with your abusive family. Mm -hmm. So I assumed that if they were poor, I wouldn't want to live with them. Um, And then you kind of see all of those different, how, how her kind of perspective on that changes as she grows up, because I think that that gives context to a line that we haven't seen in this version yet, Mm -hmm. but the idea of I could live alone if honor required Required it or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's, a big shift to, and a big moment of growth to go from the little girl who's going to be content with a miserable, abusive life because poverty is more frightening than that. Right. To an adult who's willing to weave luxury and comfort because it's the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's um, an awesome point. And I definitely, I think the narration, it adds a lot, but there's also little ways in which it feels a little awkward. Like I think I, I like that it gives us so much more insight into her thought process. We get to like, yeah, we see, you know, how she views the world and how she's interpreting things. There's also a scene later on where I think it's right after the the flaming bed scene where in her monologue, she says to herself that she's in love with him. And that's not something that we usually get until much later in the story. But one thing that I think is kind of funny about these long inner monologues is that it's usually the actor just kind of staring off into space for a bit. And like, as the monologue is playing, and I thought it was really funny the first time we got that, where she's in the bed with the doctor, like not in bed with doctor, but like he's there at her bedside and he asks her, he's like, would you want to go off with your family? And the child actress kind of stares off for a while as the monologue plays. And he literally goes, Jane, did you hear me? And she's like, oh yes, no. Like I said, she was actually zoning out during that time. So I just think that's kind of funny, but it does, it is good for the story. They just, I think need a little better way to fill that space. Well, and I think the next moment um, that is actually right at the beginning of the next episode is the, so this episode ends with Jane as an adult. She's gotten the job. She's gone to Thornfield. There we go. (laughs) She's gone to Thornfield and a horse rides past her. And then very long time later, a man falls off of that horse. Yes. I made note of that too. I love that. It's like clearly not Jane's fault at all. He just like slips on the road and she just happens to be nearby. (laughs) He like, he rides past her to the point where she goes, Oh, a man on horse. And then she like keeps walking and then he falls Mm -hmm. and she chooses to go back and help him. Her monologue in that moment, really changes the way I feel about that moment because 
that's always been sort of a like, why is this man yelling at this woman for something that's not her fault? Like that has always been my feeling about that moment Mm -hmm. in her head. The way that she talks about it is as this moment of independence where she is able to help someone, a man who's like this rich man who's riding on a horse, she can help him. And that's this really empowering thing. Mm -hmm. And it's so obvious that that would be the metaphor there. Like it's so clear. Yeah. Now that I have that context, (laughs) previously, I was so caught up how freaking rude Mr. Rochester was being (laughs) that I couldn't like get past that. So the narration in general, I don't like narrations and things. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to do something that's not great for, for movies and TV. Like it's hard to do that well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think that there are some awkward moments about it, but I think particularly, I don't know if it's because Jane Eyre is better at this, mm-hmm. um, like a better story for a narration, or if it's because it's giving me new insight into a story that I've now combed through many, many times, right. but I really liked it in this. Yeah. And no, I think that's, I'm glad that you see it that way too. And I, what I'm about to say next, I don't mean to be like, I've always seen it this way, Lillian, but like, I, I've always personally kind of liked that. Like, yeah, their first meeting, she is the one, like he's injured. She's the one who has all the agency and helps him. And then it's twice in their, in their relationship where she saves him from danger, so, like mm-hmm. helping him back on his horse after he's twisted his ankle and then preventing him from burning to death in a bed. <laughs> like well, she's, she's the hero. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's one of the examples of how they're like, something that plays out through the whole story is this idea of like what's how society sees them with him mm-hmm. being a rich man and her being a poor woman yeah um versus how they treat each other right um and that that's one of the things that i think in there's so many big sticking points that are so deeply upsetting to me mm-hmm. that that's where the like the the wife lost in the attic. I'm still not over it. Well, no, and you're <laughs> well, not supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. But that's, so that's why I think some of these um, more subtle things, mm-hmm. like the way that they explore that equality, like the way that they explore her being the one to help him mm-hmm. is harder to see until you know the story a lot better. Yeah. The way that I, I certainly know it a lot better than the first time that I saw the 80s version um, and just complained the whole time. (laughs) Well, exactly. And honestly, so I was thinking about this. So yesterday when we were getting lunch and we were joking about, uh, because Sam is our super fan and he listens and he's like, Lillian, you're totally in love with the story now. Um, And I was thinking about it and it's something that we joke about the idea of Stockholm syndrome. But at the same time, I think at its core, this story is really intriguing and it has Mm -hmm. so much depth and it explores so many complicated things. And yes, like these big plot points, which are kind of like what they would put in the trailer if they were advertising it, they're like, you'll never believe who's in the attic. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's the clickbait to get people in. But then once you're there and you're exploring like the levels of intimacy and depth that these two characters have with one another and the troubles that they're um, you know, trying to navigate and the feelings that they're navigating. It's very deep and interesting. And I think that's why the story grabs you. And that's why it's so good and why it's lasted so long is all these different themes and topics. But I think at its core, it's for me, what stands out the most is idea of like right and wrong. And this whole morality question of like, no matter how deeply we feel on this emotional level, can we compromise our sense of, you know, what is right or what is just to pursue selfish indulgences because it makes me happy, but is it right in the end and all that good stuff? Yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's absolutely like the bigger themes of Jane Eyre are, are so easy to miss with those bigger beats that we talk about. Mm-hmm. And, um, I can't remember who it was someone on Instagram, because that's where I spend all of my time now is Jane Eyre Instagram, <laughs> um, was saying that describe Jane Eyre as a very, as a deeply misunderstood story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's absolutely where I came in. And I think that if you listen to the podcast, I hope that I get more and more depth of understanding of it as we go, but certainly compared to those first couple of episodes where I'm like, Oh no, I've made a terrible mistake agreeing <laughs> to do this. Um, <laughs> is that is just those bigger broader sweeps of the plot and the mm-hmm. like 30 second summaries that we try to do yeah are wild right. um and we we haven't talked about the idea that like you have to put your feminism in the corner to read this book and I don't and 
And that was one of the things that shocked me the most as I started to learn more about the story is Mm -hmm. how many people put this on a pedestal of like a deeply feminist work. And I think that it, it absolutely is, Mm -hmm. but you have to see it in the context of how the story was created and where that story was written, because it feels very similar to me to the way that we talk about, uh, baby, it's cold outside the song. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, uh, it sounds like Piper, you may have the same context that I have for this song, but um, it feels very rapey when you put it into <laughs> modern context. But when you look at it in the context of when that song came out, there's was, a layer of it that is allowing, like it's giving a woman who shouldn't be able to stay overnight with a man based mm-hmm. on societal expectations mm-hmm. an excuse to stay overnight with a man in a very romantic way. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, with a modern lens on not okay. The way the song is written, (laughs) it's not okay. I, I think there's a quite a few things that have a lens of humor to them from older generations that today, I think it's hard for a more liberal modern audience to allow yourself to laugh at something because you're saying if I laugh at it, then I'm saying that's okay and it's acceptable. And the idea back then, I think, is that it's supposed to be like, this isn't okay. We're making fun of this thing to be like, oh, he he, like, what's in this drink, you silly person? Like they're teasing each other and having fun. But someone today is like, this guy's drugging her. She needs to get out. It's like, I think in the context of the song, they're teasing each other and having a good time and they're both into it. Like, but you know, you really have to look at it from two different sides and see what how do you feel about this and go from there. Yeah. And I think that that's, so that's how I feel about to bring it back to Jane Eyre. Cause I could just do a whole podcast about baby. It's cold outside. Um, <laughs> but to bring it back to Jane Eyre, I think that that's, it's a similar thing where these moments of kind of empowerment and equality and feminism are different. They're just, they're harder. You have to scratch a little bit beyond the surface there and mm-hmm. see what that is. And um, and it's, it's not saying, I don't, I really don't think that, uh, Charlotte Bronte is saying this is the way morals should be. I think she's mm-hmm. asking big questions right. about what should be acceptable and questioning kind of those societal standards. Yeah. Um, and I, we could end up talking about that for a really long time and then abandoning the seventies version, which deserves more <laughs> consideration specifically, but. Um, I'm glad that we took this, uh, more like deeper, uh, conversational tangent because I do, I want our podcast to be both fun, but also I think it is important and exciting to, to dive into these things. So I'm glad that we did talk about that. Um, uh, to bring it back on a funny note, when, uh, Jane first arrives in Thornfield, they have so many candelabras lit everywhere. And I'm like, wow, lots of open flames. Bertha's weapon of choice. <laughs> like, no wonder two fires are set later in this story. Is that visual foreshadowing? Like, look at all the fire. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes, absolutely. But another thing that I just want to mention with the um, that moment, to go back to the moment where we started going down the, the tangent, there's two really important things that I want to talk about. One, great pilot fantastic pilot several yes. good moments for pilot in this now is that an irish wolfhound or a scottish deerhound which one is it i guess we'll have to consult pilot uh pack pilots. of pilots the article <laughs> but while while i'm looking that up um i do want to also ask your your thoughts on something that i feel we have not addressed enough in our previous episodes which is what a great horse that horse is so good. What a great horse actor, like the, the acting that these horses do. <laughs> and because it was so natural to the scene, I've never like recalled specifically going, what a great horse actor, but it's because the horses were gr- such great horse actors. Mm-hmm. That they just felt really natural in the space. Just blended um, right in. <laughs> and I felt as I watched the credits roll from the first episode over this amazing horse, fully blowing off the man he just knocked off. <laughs> I was like, what a great horse. Anyway, I just, I feel like we've talked a lot about pilot who obviously deserves our mm-hmm. attention, Yeah, but we've not talked enough about the, I believe nameless horse. Yeah. I don't know the horse's name. I don't know if it's ever, uh, 
been said aloud in a version that I can recall. But yeah, good horse, good dog. This Rochester automatically got some negative points for me because he's not nice to Adele. But one thing that was interesting is that at the party, the guests, this is like one of the first times I've seen where the guests are nice to Adele. And even I think it's Mrs. Ingram, who is the one who's speaking to Adele in French. Which I was like, yes. oh, that's we never see that. Usually everyone's looking like giving Adele's like side eye and judgy faces, and they're like, ew, why is that child here? But this time they were nice to her. I feel like nice to her is such a strong word in that because the vibe that I got from it was definitely more of a um, oh, Adele's such a little doll. Like yeah. she's like this thing that you want to like see and be like, oh, she's got like little ringlets and look, put her off in the corner, but don't, she's not a person though. Yeah. It's Which, definitely again, surface this, level. And we know this was before kids were people. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's more like what a cool accessory you have, Mr. Rochester, rather than yeah. <laughs> what no, a totally. cool person. Before we get too far away from this point, I actually want to spend a little bit of time. So in most versions, uh, when Rochester is first kind of like, you know, judging for himself, Jane's character, and he's asking her all those questions, he we almost always get to see her art portfolio, which I, um, I do uh, digital art and illustration in my free time. So I personally am very drawn to <laughs> drawn to um, Jane's art. And I love seeing when a version actually shows us their rendition of her paintings. Mm-hmm. I really liked this style. It was very graphic. And I don't mean that in like a bloody way. I mean, it's very detailed. Um, I loved how much time, how much screen time the drawing, the paintings got. And even the time that they dedicated to Rochester, like diving into it of being mm-hmm. like, how, who taught you how to draw wind? He's like, that is an angry sky. And he even says, he's like, this is a location. Like, were you ever there? And I love that it, it both, I think it's an important scene because it, a, it's doing what Rochester is trying to do about, you know, being like, you're innocent and I'm experienced. I've studied the masters and painters, and I know all kinds of stuff about art criticism and blah, blah, blah. And yet it also, I think for him too, and for the audience, Jane's art is a window into her imagination, her soul, and her personality. For such a quiet, small governess, she draws these unbelievable paintings of women, like with stars coming out of their foreheads, for she is like the evening star and a bird on the waves, and it has a crown and an arrow in its beak. And it's like these are things that no one would ever see. And to have that imagination when in such like a restrictive setting, I love that it took time to show us that and to explore that. Yeah. And I think that that's, that is such a great example of what I have truly loved about this adaption. And I think is what our audience has sort of told us when we've talked about these different versions. And I think that idea of like the passion and the real relationship and all of that stuff, I think this is a great example of Rochester and Jane having what feels like a real relationship and actually falling in love as opposed to like just kind of interacting and being weird. Like they have real conversations. Once again, this is an example where Rochester is absolutely talking to her, not at Mm -hmm. her. I think there's a couple of moments where it feels like he's talking more at her and in his own head, but for the most part, he is absolutely talking to her. He wants to get to know her. Mm -hmm. And I think her narration in those moments really lend context in a way that I find so helpful because there is the way that she responds to him with quiet Mm -hmm. and the way that that is actually her way of controlling the conversation in the same way that his sort of demands are his way of controlling and the way that it changes it from this power dynamic of he's in charge and he's her boss and he's in control and like all this stuff to them playing a game back and forth and having this banter where her her silence is just as much control as his yelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think he knows that and he likes having someone to play with. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that gives context to a line we've talked about before, which is like the, I can't, um, talk to silly old ladies, um, mm-hmm. or children. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that he like Miss Fairfax is never going to banter with him like that. She's like, yes, sir. Of course, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think where you said like Jane will, you, you said like play with him. I think it's safe to say too, that like, he's finally found someone who can match his wit and his stubbornness. Uh, cause I think they both have that. 
and where like even when we see the uh the people at the party they it doesn't seem like they would be like interested in kind of like deeper philos more so philosophical conversations on like the intelligent mr rochester because they're also like being like oh yes well we will talk about riding horses and playing billiards and the acceptable areas of conversation so well and it feels like to the way that they're conversing is so much more like playing a social game right and rochester's not interested in that like mm-hmm. he, he's talked about the fact that he doesn't care about politics and like, we mm-hmm. see some of that as well. And I think the way that like Blanche is very clearly portrayed in this as very educated and that's yeah. her intelligence. Her intelligence mm-hmm. is she knows a lot of things and she wields it in a way that I don't enjoy, which is to like minimize this other woman's like, I just really like gardening. And she's like, you don't even know the names on any of the plants. And I'm like, calm down. It's like um, the lady likes flowers. Let her like flowers. Just be <laughs> like, that, that one is pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that that's even the way that Blanche uses that is as a societal um, coin and like mm-hmm. a point that she wants to get. And the conversations between Jane and Rochester are so much more like they're they're more open and they're mm-hmm. more there's more substance to it, not in that playing the game of social chess is hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I do think that there's a lot of ways to do that, that has like not value, but is, yeah. it can be interesting and engaging to the right kind of person. Right. Jane and Rochester are deeply just uninterested in playing mm-hmm. the game of social politics and being a part of society and playing those cards the right way. Yeah. They are way <laughs> more interested in the conversations about like, genuinely having a conversation about what is the dynamic here? Like that was one of the most interesting parts to me about essentially the entire second episode, or at Mm -hmm. least the vast majority of it is those two talking. And I loved giving the time to that. Yeah. And, and it's so much more of the, what is, what does it mean that I'm your boss? And like, Mm -hmm. would you do this? And where is the line? And like exploring those morals in that philosophical way that you're talking about. Yeah. No, I really liked that too. What do you think of, let's just talk about this Rochester for a second. I don't find him attractive myself, which is good. That means it's accurate to the story. His, he, okay. Tell me if you get what I, what I mean when I say this, he gives me, um, Mr. Collins vibes. And it's not because he's as awkward and toady as Mr. Collins. I think it's more just like his manner of speaking like, it's just kind of like the voice and dialect sounds kind of similar, but also he has, he's very strict about his facial features. And he sometimes like his are his eyes dart around a little bit, a little bit in that performance. It made me think of Mr. Collins, although I prefer Rochester to Mr. Collins, obviously, but, um, I just kind of got that vibe from this performance. Yeah, I think I can absolutely see that. And I think I, I think I've said before that I'm attracted to personality often more than Mm -hmm. physical, whatever. So I found him super interesting to talk to. Like I would like to have a conversation with him, um, which made me think that I would want to, uh, like hang out with him and date him. And I found him more attractive. Mm -hmm. I know that you in general are more into like physique than me. (laughs) And that's not to minimize, like, I'm you. Not I was going to say, don't say that. that's more than personality. Cause no, <laughs> no. Um, but I also think there's a particular type of man, Timothy Dalton, that you are attracted to. <laughs> and he tends to be larger, um, and more like chiseled than this, uh, Rochester. And I did, because I did notice that most of the Rochester we've seen are sort of like they're larger, both in physique and personality. I mm-hmm. think he has a, a less, he's a little um, more reserved. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and I, I want to say soft, but not in like a, not to not in a demeaning way at all. Just like a, he's just a softer man in a nice yeah. way, but he is, he is significantly shorter than a lot of the Rochester's, particularly when you look at the height difference, because mm-hmm. I actually explicitly looked this up for them. So Jane, the Jane in this is five, eight, um, mm-hmm. which is a, was a little bit Pretty on the tall. tall side for a woman. Yeah. 
Um, and then he's five ten. Okay. So if she wore heels in this at all, they're the same height. <laughs> Cute. Um, so I think there is a lot of scenes where she is sitting down and he is standing up and like yes. that trying to get that hulking over. Mm-hmm. There's something about him doing that and them like trying to capture that. Yeah. But failing that yeah. makes <laughs> get those Mr. Collins vibes that you're talking about, where it's like, dude, this isn't it's fine that you're not a large, large man. Don't try yeah. to be one. Yeah. <laughs> Lillian, what did you think of his singing? Great job. Good yeah. job. You did it. Um, it is <laughs> a it. real nightmare of mine to have a man like sing to me. Like that's the thing that would be <laughs> horrifying. Cause like, what do you do? Do you look directly in their eyes? Do you like have to smile the whole time and then your face starts to hurt and then your cheeks start to twitch and you're like, no, I'm just twitching and smiling. What do I do? Where do I look? <laughs> and the fact that Jane, like that whole moment was so good because uh, Blanche essentially bullies him into singing for her. Mm-hmm. And, but then he, ver- he clearly likes being the center of attention of that room of people. Yeah. But then Jane gets so upset. She leaves and he turns. So he's singing towards her. She gets mm-hmm. up to leave. He walks around the piano to watch her leave yep. and sing at her while she leaves. And then he wraps up the song and runs and after her. Runs after her. Like everyone in the room would be so aware that they're like, well, he has the hots for that lady. <laughs> like clearly he just ran after her after she left. I, I'm kind of, I was expecting this one because this, ep, this version, it seems to be pretty true to a lot of the beats that we see when adaptations are closer to the novel. Mm-hmm. And I believe it is a, a thing in the novel that when Jane leaves the party, um, she like stops on the stair to tie the laces of her slipper, which have, which have come loose. And when mm-hmm. Rochester comes after her, he like bends down and he ties the laces for her, which is so cute. I think we've only seen that in one version so far. And I thought for sure when he was going out here, I was like, oh, he's going to do the the helping with her with her slipper thing. But he didn't. And I was sad. Well, now we'll just have to call them and let them know. 1973, you're done. Get him on the phone, Lillian. Use our time traveling telephone. <laughs> Be like, um, you forgot to do this one scene and it's really important. It's sort of like the reason we watched the movie. Um, but <laughs> no, I think I, I am also disappointed that that didn't happen. Don't remember that happening in any of the other ones, but I'm probably wrong because that is the kind of sweet soft moment that you would know for sure. I know. I know one of the versions we've seen did that. And I'm like, oh yeah, do it in all of them. But <laughs> they rarely do. So I don't know why. There's, there are other, my, one of my favorite moments that they don't do in everything that they did, I, at least for sure in the 2006 one, when she's leaving to go to her aunts and they do the money moment where she he's I don't know if he starts the conversation or she starts the conversation but she needs money to be able to go home and he goes here's 50 pounds and she's like that's so much that's almost twice her salary for a year that he tries (laughs) to give her and she's like no that makes me really uncomfortable and then he goes well here is fine then you can have ten dollars and she goes well then you owe me five yeah um and (laughs) then he's like you'll have to come back for it and then like (laughs) the little moments of like when, as they keep talking and he's like, oh my God, I'm suddenly worried. She's not going to come back. Be like, I actually, I actually need that money back. I have, I have need of that, that 10 pounds. And she's like, as do I, (laughs) I agree. I agree. Those scenes are adorable. It's oftentimes some of the first moments where we get to see them like kind of actively flirting in like a really cute way. I also think if I'm going to put on my um, philosophical, not philosophical, my analytical hat uh, once more, it's very interesting that this is a scene um, because so often we know uh, women who would want to pursue him, AKA Blanche are after his money. And here is a scene where they are directly talking about money itself. And it's of such insignificance to Jane apart from the bare necessity of the thing. And I think that really stands out to him is that he's like, I gave you 50 and she's like, that's too much. Take it back. And he's like, whoa, okay. If I had any doubts before that you wanted me for my wealth, you just put it down because here you are practical Jane. And I love you. Please stay. How do teach me how to say goodbye? Does it involve kisses? <laughs> how, do, how do people say goodbye? I, I had need a lesson on the ritual. Ooh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, and I think we've also talked too about the fact that uh, Rochester is gifts are clearly his love language mm-hmm. and how that's been taken advantage of in the past, both by, um, 
his crazy wife, um, and most notably by Adele's mom. Yeah. Um, and how she like, and how triggering that is for him. And so I think having someone like Jane that is not there for that and like, and he can just sort of like let himself give her all the presents and let himself just give her twice as much as her salary because he feels (laughs) like it, um, I think would be such a freeing thing for him. And it's just so sweet that they have this moment. Yeah. Uh, But I really like this Rochester. My only negative about the Rochester is how he treats Adele. I don't like it. I think it's, it, it's something we talked about before, which is like when it's teasing, like Mm -hmm. Clearly there's love there, but I'm teasing her and she's Mm -hmm. fine with it and it's fine. Yeah. That's okay for me. Mm -hmm. When Adele is sad because Rochester is mean to her, which is true in this adaption, Mm -hmm. makes it so hard to like him. Right. Like I think one of the worst scenes, apart from him like actively like barking at her and anytime she tries to talk to him in the drawing room, is when Adele and Jane are out for their walk Mm -hmm. and she sees him running by on the horses and she's like, she runs to the horses and she's like, Monsieur Rochester. And he just like runs by, like hardly giving any room between his galloping horse and the small child that he's taking care of. And she's like, he hates me. I will never talk to him again. And it's like, yeah, that would be hard. Stop being so mean, Rochester. Well, and, and he like, he has like, it's supposed, it's one of those things where like, there's supposed to be this layer of like, well, she's really into presents and his, her mom was really into presents and he's got lots of like trauma and damage from that. And like, Mm -hmm. what a poor sad man. And it's like, no, she's a child. And actually like, (laughs) I know at some point I'll have to get over it, but I will never get over the fact that she's a little kid Mm -hmm. who just wants to be loved who has been taken away from everything she's ever known and lives in a country where most people don't speak the same language as her. Mm -hmm. She is only around servants and her governess. Yep. In a big spooky house. mad at her because you showed up and she wanted to talk to you. Right. Actually, you're the worst, dude. You know what's something that isn't really explored except for, I think, in the 2006 version that we've seen so far is if Jane can hear the horrific cackling laughter, that means Adele can hear it too. That would be terrifying. Even as an adult, imagine being a kid and you hear that. Like you've been taken away from beautiful Paris, the city of lights and love, locked up in a cold castle in rainy old England. And there's a cackling witch upstairs. It's like, am I a princess in a fairy tale? Where is my prince to come save me from this horrible place? (laughs) I think one of my last things, oh yeah, one of my last things that I want to point out before we do sort of a wrap up here. One thing I think that, a decision they made in this version that I wasn't crazy about is so after Jane helps with the brother-in-law who's been bit Mason and they've put him in the carriage and then Rochester and Jane, they go on that little walk. Um, I mean, I like that he gave her the flower and everything, but what I didn't like is the choice here where in this version, Rochester is the one who implies that Ingram Blanche Ingram is his wife, where I think it's a moment it's a chance for the story adaptation to have to be really cute and sweet when he's talking vaguely about his future wife and it's Jane who thinks that it's Ink Blanche. And he's always like, in those versions, I think that's way better because he's like, what? Blanche? Yeah, okay, I guess we're still going with this illusion. Sure, it's Blanche, whatever. Let's keep talking about this. But here he's the one who's like, it's Blanche. And she's like, oh, wah, wah. <laughs> so- yeah, he. Yeah, that was that was one where I was like, oop, another negative for Mr. Rochester. <laughs> you don't actually you you now aren't accidentally gaslighting her or like trying to make her jealous. You are actively gaslighting her. Yes. So yeah, um, negative yeah. for that one. <laughs> I have a couple of fun facts and then obviously I have Bonnet Watch. Um, Amazing. So share them with me. The first fun fact is did you recognize Mrs. Reed? Yes, I did. She is our Fairfax from the 80s version. Yeah. So 10 years later, she plays um, Mrs. Fairfax. Uh, I did I did go get a picture. Her name is Jean Harvey. Um, cool. And I did go get a picture of her from the 80s version. And she looks so beautiful in this. Yeah. And they did their absolute best in the 80s version to make it look like she aged 30 years in that decade. <laughs> Woof. She, there's, she very clearly didn't. Like, she's mm-hmm. still a very beautiful woman in that. But they give her, because I went and watched some of the scenes to get a good screenshot of it. Yeah. They give her, like, the most intense bonnet. She's always wearing these little glasses. It's so, <laughs> so much. 
Well, I wonder um, if maybe they did that in part because they're like, this actress just appeared into Jane Eyre like 10 years ago. And they thought it'd be a little disorienting for people to be like, wait, is that Mrs. Fairfax? And so maybe they did that partially to kind of distance her from the other role. I don't know. It is like the main thing that this woman is known for. I mean, not the main thing. She's been in other stuff too. But when you Google her, like one of the first things that comes up is her being both of these versions of Jane Eyre. Amazing. Um, <laughs> but she, one other thing that I want to just talk about a little bit there is I think I didn't really like her Mrs. Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that she was like, and I think that was the intention of the way they played her because Mrs. Fairfax is another character that can be played so differently where mm-hmm. it's like you can either make her like Jane's friend and ally or you can make her kind of a mean conspirator who's helping hide this big secret from Jane. Yeah. Um, and I think the way she, her playing of Mrs. Reed, though, she was a fantastic Mrs. Reed. Yeah. She was so good at that. I found her delusional kind of ranting at the end kind of amusing because she's not even forming complete sentences. She's like, Jane, who said, who said that word? And it's just like, Jane's like, I'm here, you big dummy. <laughs> it's me, the this lady you hate. The first, uh, so I, I have one more fact, but let's do Bonnet Watch first. So this is the first uh, adaption where uh, there's no death bonnet. She just nope. has her hair out. She's dying without a death bonnet. Yeah. And I don't know how you do that. Um, <laughs> if you're going to die of essentially like sadness because your son ran the family Killed into the himself. ground, yeah, <laughs> you have to have a death bonnet. You should be sweaty <laughs> in a death bonnet. I don't know how else you die. See, um, this uh, Mrs. Reed was pretty like spazzy and agitated. So they probably tried to put a death bonnet on her, but like a fussy baby, she kept ripping it off. So <laughs> that's my theory. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. You know what? That fills in a gap for me. And this is why this podcast is so important is it lends me context for moments like this. Like why doesn't Mrs. Reed have a death bonnet? Yeah. Fussy baby. Fussy baby syndrome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry. Another thing about that moment is she fully just says, I hate Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right to the face. Out loud back to the screen said, I hate you. (laughs) Amazing. I wish I, if this actress uh, was still alive, I'd love to interview her and be like, which role did you have more fun playing? Probably it was dying, angry Mrs. Reed. <laughs> Do we know if she's still alive? I don't know. Let's she find was, out right now. It's important to me now. Yeah. She looked kind of elderly in the eighties version. So I'd assume she is now um, filming Aww. movies in heaven. Yeah, she is filming. She's been filming movies in heaven since 2013. Very nice. At age 83. Awesome. Way so to go. It would be quite the journey if she was still alive. Anyway, so the other facts that I have are no, let me wrap up Bonnet Watch because yes. I have a couple other bonnets. Adele, in that scene that we talked about when Mr. Rochester totally blows her off, mm-hmm. has a fur lined bonnet. Yeah. What a what a choice. Dang. So good. Gotta keep Loved it warm. It. <laughs> um little fancy girls had fancy girl bonnets, mm-hmm. another yep. great one. Yep. Weren't quite as many sad orphan bonnets. The sad orphan bonnets weren't as intense in this. Um, well, they had to remove the sad orphan bonnets so Mr. Brocklehurst could work himself into a tizzy mm-hmm. about top knots. Those yeah. would have been hidden and those girls would have been safe if only they which, had bonnets to protect them from his scissors of wrath. Which we'd have to double check with a man. But I do think that honestly, having your hair like braided and like up on top of your head is too sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, so like Mr. Mr. Brocklehurst, who I always refer to as Mr. Broccoli in my notes, um, and I have different, (laughs) we have different ways that we would treat children, but that is one thing that we agree on is that's really sexual. So, so there was, there were some other really great, uh, headwear pieces. Jane has some great, her like main bonnet. I'm Mm -hmm. a big fan of her main bonnet. Her outfit, um, like her kind of walking clothes with the white trim on the black, that was interesting. That seemed a bit more fancy than I would typically expect for Jane, but it was, it was I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it also. Um, but otherwise, you know, I've got, I have some other screenshots of bonnets. Um, none of them worth really talking about, but you know, check out our Instagram at Jane Eyre and you can <laughs> see the, the soon to be trending hashtag of bonnet watch 1847 Amazing. Um, to see all our hot bonnet takes. Um, but, <laughs> but I have two more little fun facts. One, I think this is the closest age gap that we've had between Jane and Rochester more so than with, um, in the 2000, no, in yeah. The one with um, 2006 was really close as well. Yeah. 
but this one, Jane is 24 and Rochester is 38. Oh, which in the book, cause I did double check this. Cause in the, in this, they referenced his age and they were like, he's almost 40. And I was like, he's the actor is over 40 in most of the versions of it that we've watched. Mm. Mr. Rochester is supposed to be 35. Oh, he's so young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just, uh, it's, I guess the drasticness is that she's 18. So it's like, okay, there's, there's your difference, but still that's pretty young. Yeah. Um, and then one other fact that I looked up while we were talking about this pilot oh, is an Irish wolfhound. Nice. Irish wolfhound. Oh, I want to say what we just said about, um, uh, Rochester's supposed to be 35 makes me always think of, um, cause you read all of the twilight novels, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I personally, so I haven't read the books, but I, uh, watched the movies and I am definitely part of the twilight resurgence in these last few years. I am a diehard twilight, uh, super fan, but I always think it's hilarious that Carlisle Cullen is supposed to be like 25 and he's like the, the patriarch of their family. And I'm like, he's not much older than the kids he adopted. I'm like, this is weird, <laughs> but that makes me think of that. They're like, Oh, look at this wise and worldly man. He's only 27. <laughs> you know, I think as I'm looking it up, I think it's the same age gap, the 2006 and the, uh, and the 73. Although okay. I did when he calls her 18, I did go, she doesn't even look 18. She looks yeah. like she could be 30. She's 24. Yes. yes. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a great thing. And then one other thing, and I know we keep saying we're like wrapping up, but I, <laughs> I realized as we were talking about this, something that you and I actually ch- chatted just for a scooch about, but not on the show yet is how seventies this adaption is the yes. furniture, the mm-hmm. clothes, the hair, the hair is what stood out to me the pajamas. Oh my God. And- Dude. I, I got so excited when the party rushes out and that man is wearing a nightcap. It's one of my favorite articles of clothing that's ever existed. I want to bring sleeping caps back into fashion. Yeah. I've told a couple people, I'm like, if you want to give me a present, it would be like a comical gift, but I would love it. I don't know if I'd actually use it, but a little sleepy cap that like has like floppy on one side with a little pom-pom. And I'm like, just the idea of someone wearing that to bed is the cutest, funniest thing. It's so good. Oh, okay. I just wanted to talk about that. The green furniture. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that green is actually really seventies or if I just think of it as really seventies, but yeah. the green suede furniture is such a choice. <laughs> I said to you, when we talked about this off air, that this Jane has the biggest hair of any Jane that we've seen. Cause yeah, she's got like the seventies tees going on where typically that like down the middle hairdo is rather unflattering. You really need the right face for it. But here they're like, Ooh, that looks bad. Let's give it a little bump. So she's got to bump it in while she sleeps. (laughs) Yes. Um, So on that note for these first three episodes of the 90 or 1973 adaption. Yeah. What is your rating? I think I'm going to give this and it might surprise you, but I'm going to give this, I think a six out of 10. Whoa. Yeah. I, right now I am very like feeling rather average about it. Um, I I really like the things that are explored in it. Um, like the, these moments of personal connection, I really like. Um, but I'm, I'm just also not personally super like drawn in to this Jane in Rochester. I do enjoy them, but I haven't, experience the passion and the romance that I've gotten from other versions that usually bring my points up and he's mean to Adele. So he lost points for that. So, wow. That, that is honestly astonishing to me. I think this is going to be our biggest gap in scores, um, which what is your, yeah. Um, I'm going to give this six out of 10 Timmy D's. Wow. Yeah. Cause we, that is what we're comparing it to. It is. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, on the other hand, um, feel that I think it, I think this really highlights the differences in what we come to Jane Eyre for and what Mm -hmm. it is that we find particularly, um, alluring in a romance, (laughs) which is I'm into the talking baby. I like it when they sit and have a cool conversation and they've got that witty banter going. Um, so I have nine out of 10 pilots. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, Lillian. I do love the talking as well. Um, and I do think their chemistry was good. I don't know this one. And maybe it's partially just because I watched these episodes in a bit of a scramble this week. 
Um, so maybe I just couldn't get in the zone, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick by well, my thing. I think this is good, but it just didn't wow me. And I think we both, I, I don't think it's that you, I'm not trying to say you don't like the talking. Mm-hmm. I think it's where we prioritize it. And like, you have to have, I don't need the steamy tension, mm-hmm. um, like kind of the fire as mm-hmm. much as I need the like talking and the respect and yeah, all of those yeah. things. Like that is so important to me. And I think they do that really, really well. I think, um, Jane, this is a great Jane. She does a really good job of, of yeah. get, I love getting that extra context to her, mm-hmm. um, and all those things. Um, so that's, I think why, why it's a little higher to me and we'll see how we feel about it as we watch the next two episodes and wrap up this, uh, adaptation next Ooh. week. Um, <laughs> can't wait and, for that. And get those last, those last <laughs> few. <laughs> those last few in. Yeah. Um, Lillian, in the meantime, as our, our listeners are um, waiting in anticipation for our review of the final episodes of this season, how can they reach out to us and tell, share their thoughts and feelings? Um, well, obviously, uh, there's our email, airbuds at gmail.com. Then uh, we also have a Twitter, also air, at airbuds. We have a Facebook page. You can search for Airbuds. Um, and then where it's really popping off, where everybody's hanging out and chatting um, is on Instagram, again, mm-hmm. at Airbuds. And that's where you can find uh, our lovely community chatting away there. Although there are, uh, we do pay attention to all of them. You can access it via any of those. Um, I believe also we're working on getting carrier pigeons set up, but that's been a whole thing. So unfortunately we, the birds are harder to train than dogs and horses. So, and we also had this moment of like, we started training the birds and we were like, but how does that help our listeners contact us if we have the birds? And it was a whole thing. We started talking to the trainer about it. It's we, we'll get to it eventually. Yeah. We'll figure it out. There, there'll be a way. Don't you worry. Um, if you really need to reach us and you can't just, uh, set your mansion on fire, we'll probably see the smoke signal and we'll know to come. Yeah. I have a, I have a Google alert for mansions on fire. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I will, I will hear about it on the news for sure. sure. Yeah. Or, you know, just, um, scream our name into the wind (laughs) and we'll probably sense it across the world and come to you. So yeah, that'll be great. That's actually, that's my preferred method, but Mm -hmm. just in case it's good to send a backup email again to airbuds at gmail.com. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I don't know if you, um, awoke in the night suddenly hearing me screaming your name, but in case you didn't, here's my backup email. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Three people here still here. Thank you so much for listening. Yes. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Lillian, for talking with me. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Bye guys. Bye.